0: Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast. Headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart.
1: When we think about some of the significant issues that go along with or even lead to crime problems in our communities these days, a lot of what we hear about from law enforcement and see on the streets more prevalently in a lot of areas leads back to drugs.
0: Specifically, opioids and fentanyl are impacting people in ways that we have really never seen before. We've covered the dangers of fentanyl extensively on our previous podcast episodes here. Specifically, we uh, spoke with the DEA in one episode. If you want to check that out, we'll post a link in the show notes. But then also, Gabby, you've investigated the fentanyl crisis for KRQE on air. You had a big investigative piece about this. If you can tell us what was behind this, um, why are we hearing so much about fentanyl these days?
1: Yeah. So just for, you know, the audience who's not familiar with this drug, according to the DEA, the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid that's used in hospital settings to treat severe pain. But the type of fentanyl that we're hearing about is coming across the border in droves from Mexican cartels, according to the DEA. It's designed to look like a prescription medication like oxycodone, but it's approximately 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin, and it's also cheap and highly addictive.
0: Yeah, so it is smaller, it's being moved in large quantities, it is costing people less, it's more powerful, it's just a whole recipe of a really terrible situation that we're seeing in a lot of these communities. And one of the ways authorities are attacking the fentanyl and opioid crisis and attempting to save people who are considered to be quote, high risk for an overdose, that is through the court system. So with us today to talk about a brand new program within the court system here in Bernalillo County is Metropolitan Court Judge Claire McDaniel and also Stacy Boone. Stacy is the Behavioral Health Division Director at the court. Thank you both for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having us.
0: Yeah, we're glad to have you guys here. And and, and Judge McDaniel, I wanted to start with you. You've been in Metro Court here in Bernalillo County in the court's felony division since September. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so you live in Albuquerque as well. You have family here. What do you see are the kinds of issues the community is facing? And also though, first, if you can tell us more about your background in the criminal justice system.
2: Well, let's see here. I uh, graduated from UNM School of Law in 2010. And then I became a prosecutor in 2013 and i was a prosecutor up until i became a judge last september okay and as you as you said yes i am i'm raising my family here i have a 2 and a 4 year old so i think we all have toddlers in this room and so we're all exhausted <laughs> yeah. all the time <laughs> and you know it's i mean you can't you can't avoid seeing the issues there's the unhoused population that only seems to be growing there's obviously the huge crisis with Fentanyl use and overdose, and that's affecting every sphere of our community, every corner of our community. No one is left untouched by it. So those are definitely the issues that I think we're all seeing.
0: And you switched from being a prosecutor to a judge. What was the intriguing kind of uh, differential for you?
2: Actually, it was to do exactly what I'm doing now and to do it at Metro Court. Metro Court is an amazing place. It's a courthouse that's always on the front lines of everything. You know on the cutting edge of treatment courts we're like a model treatment court courthouse for other other courthouses around the state and around the country so just being able to do something like this i could only do it at metro court and you know i could i can do things as a judge that i wasn't able to do as a prosecutor obviously yeah. um and it's just it's a really fulfilling career
1: yeah interesting Stacey, same thing. Can you tell us what is a behavioral health division director and what did you do before this role?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So before this role, um, I was working at UNM hospitals in their behavioral health field, working with criminal justice individuals that had been released into custody doing case management services. Before that, I've also worked here in Albuquerque in the nonprofit sector. So I do have a lot of kind of boots on the ground experience with that. I was a program director at an organization called Crossroads for Women that is also working with justice-involved women. And before that, I actually worked um, in facilities in the state. So I worked in Santa Fe County Detention Center as a case manager and a reentry specialist. I do hold a master's degree in criminal justice, as well as some undergraduates in psychology and criminal justice as well. And so to get back to the first part of your question regarding the Behavioral Health Division, so um, Metro Court is really, like Judge McDaniel said, on the front lines of being innovative and you know, coming up with unique ways of solving problems that we have in our community and and facing challenges head on. And so the court decided that we really needed to focus and um, put some intent behind our behavioral health services within the court. The court has always had, you know, some version of behavioral health services, but the time was ripe to really highlight that and to really put some intention around that. So the court um, branched off its probation division into, it's actually into three parts, which is our standard probation, our specialty courts probation, and then now our behavioral health court division. So behavioral health division really encompasses, it's kind of a wide range of things. So we have our outreach court, which is our homeless court, formerly known as homeless court. We have our competency courts under the behavioral health umbrella. We have our court clinician under that umbrella as well. We have behavioral health um, DWI court, behavioral health court, behavioral health resource connection. And now we have our opt-in court under the behavioral health umbrella. So it's really um, intended to be kind of a one-stop shop for individuals that are in that intersection of criminal justice and behavioral health and trying to take the next steps out of that system.
0: And it feels like a, not a one size fits all approach in having all those different.
3: Absolutely. We really are trying to offer a spectrum of services. We have case managers in the division. We have three of them that are really dedicated to working with this population sort of ongoing. We have probation officers as well to supervise the criminal case of things. And then I mentioned our court clinician We have program coordinators that are involved in all of our competency work because we really are focused on that as well. Um, And then we have a case manager that's directly working on this opt-in project as well as myself so that we can really kind of, you know, catch people at at various points along the spectrum, whether it's, you know, they've been in and out of the system for 20 years or whether this is sort of their first offense and they're realizing that, you know, they need some help um, outside of the criminal justice system. So we're really trying to kind of, like I said, be unique in our approach and recognizing that the majority of people are, you know, coming into the criminal justice system having some history of trauma, some history of behavioral health needs. The name of the program that we are talking
1: about today is the Overdose Prevention Treatment and Intervention or Opt In Court. So it's the first thing like this in the state designed to prevent opioid over overdose upon contact with the criminal justice system. That's how your court described it in its announcement. First, broadly, can you tell us why start a program like this in Albuquerque?
2: So it's primarily to um, obviously it's to address the, the fentanyl use and overdose crisis. And it's, it recognizes that the, this point of time, the first you know 60 days after somebody is arrested, if we can divert those people from jail immediately into treatment, that is the critical window both to overdose and to engage in services. So um, if we can divert them, we'll prevent the overdose and we'll get them to actually like meaningfully engage in a treatment plan, which will also have the effect of, you know, reducing crime because they won't get out and, and reoffend offend immediately to, to feed their habit. So that was kind of the overarching goal of the program.
0: And we understand the idea was inspired by an opioid treatment court in Buffalo, New York. It's a collaborative effort, it sounds like, with metro court judges like yourself, as well as the Bernalillo County DA's office and the Public Defender's office. Private Defense Bar and also community providers as well have components in there. And so, Judge McDaniel, I know you've said, quote, we all have a stake in this. For those that think, you know, I don't know anyone who uses drugs or this doesn't impact me. I'm not a drug user. Why is this something that you feel like we all have a stake in?
2: Well, it's a community problem. And I don't know of anyone who's not affected by this. If you don't, if you don't have an immediate family member, you may have an extended family member. You may have a friend who has a close family member or, you know, a parent at your at your children's school. You, you see it affecting businesses, you see it, you know, the economics of our city, you, you see it affecting, you know, children are overdosing. So everyone absolutely has a stake in this. It affects children, businesses, education, you know, and your immediate family. And you see it every day when you're driving to work in the morning, too. It's, it's everywhere. And if it doesn't, you know, if you don't feel like you have a stake in it, then, I mean, you're, you're part of this community. So you have to have a stake in it.
0: Yeah. It almost feels like if you don't feel like you have a stake in it, you probably have some big blinders on because it really is out there. It is really a prevalent issue.
1: Absolutely. How does this program work exactly? I'm assuming, you know, someone first has to get arrested or get in trouble with drugs, so to speak. Right.
2: Right. And, you know, primarily what I see in my caseload is it's 90, 80 to 90 percent fentanyl related. If it's um, any sort of drug possession crime now also has fentanyl involved. So it it really does permeate through my caseload. So people who are booked into custody, they undergo a series of questions during the booking process. And as part of those questions, we've added a couple involving fentanyl. And if they choose to answer those questions and they answer affirmatively that I am a fentanyl user, I have overdosed. In the you know past year, I combine them with other drugs and alcohol, and then the other the last one is I use alone. If they answer affirmatively to even just I am a fentanyl user, that makes them eligible, and that information is provided to contact at the DA's office and the PD's office, the public defenders and the district attorney's office, and then the district attorney looks at the charges and the case, and they make the offer. So while that person is still in custody, it's all in the works. DA is looking at the case and seeing if it's an eligible charge, which is we're, we're sticking with just possession of a controlled substance. So, you know, all only nonviolent, just possessing of drugs, crimes will, will be referred. And then that offer is made to the public defender who then advises the client. The client chooses to accept and they're referred to the program. you you stated earlier the partnerships we have. We've partnered with, I mean, this is truly a community initiative. We have, everyone has a seat at the table in this program. We have um, an agency called the Resource Reentry Center and that's where people are released from jail. It's the first point of contact with back into the community. And they're amazing. They have case managers and we're, so we coordinate with the jail, the um, case managers at the reentry center, We coordinate with lots of other treatment providers, and then we come up with a meaningful treatment plan for these people that have chosen to opt in.
0: So we often hear when someone gets in trouble with law enforcement for drug-related issues and, and maybe their crimes haven't arisen to the level of doing anything dangerous or violent to anyone else yet, we'll hear things like, you know, they don't need prison, they need help. How does this program help someone who is at risk for an opioid overdose? Because it it really does sound like just from the conversation we've had, that is the aim here.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, we're trying to approach this as sort of a public health issue as well, you know, as understanding that it's also a criminal justice issue. But we're, we're trying to bring the treatment, you know, sooner into the picture. We're trying to recognize that, you know, for us to be able to successfully, you know, assist people that are struggling with fentanyl or other opiate use, We really want to get them connected to the appropriate services right away. So, you know, Judge mentioned the the resource reentry center. We absolutely utilize them, but we connect people to detox services right away after they're released. If they're still in the process of detoxing, if they're done with their detox and they're not, you know, still in that physical piece of it, then we will connect them to medication assisted treatment right away. So they'll go from the reentry center directly to the door of a clinic that can provide them methadone or Suboxone, something that will assist them in remaining off of fentanyl you know, really trying to treat it with that medical piece and that medical intervention. You know, the judge mentioned that we have a lot of stakeholders sort of involved in at the table. We have persons with lived experience um, that are advising this project as well. We have addiction scientists from different parts of the community that are informing this project. So we're really taking that feedback about the best treatment for individuals suffering from, from substance use disorder. And we're making sure that we're, you know, following those best practices. We're making sure that we're utilizing that that sort of new information and, and making sure that we're approaching it that way. You know, fentanyl is, it's a—it's kind of a own beast. And, you know, we haven't seen anything like this. You know, we've, we've seen meth, we've seen heroin, we've seen all of these sorts of, of things in our community, but fentanyl is so much more lethal. It's so much more accessible. It's so inexpensive. It's really just sort of permeating the community and like the judgments and, you know, you know, it's, we're seeing it in our schools. We're seeing our children accidentally overdose because they're not sure that the thing in front of them is, you know, laced with deadly fentanyl. So We're really trying to take that medical approach first and foremost, and then sort of address the behavioral health needs after the fact, you know, long term case management, sober living, IOP, intensive outpatient services, really anything that the person might need. And we're also really invested in getting the families on board and making sure that we have peer support involved, making sure that the families know what's going on with their loved ones and their individuals so that they can best support them as well.
1: You mentioned, you know, all these resources and partnerships, and it, it sounds like, you know, if somebody is deferred into this program, they would, you know, potentially be able to avoid that punitive sort of punishment or prison time. But is this a voluntary court program? And if so, how do you think it, it'll succeed since so many, you know, addicts are not easily on board with getting and utilizing resources?
3: Yeah, I think that it's um, it's really going to be, it, to answer your question, it is voluntary for sure. We don't want to be forced, you know, treating somebody, you know, we, we know throughout history that that's really not the best way to get people, you know, connected with services and connected to recovery. So we really want it to be voluntary, but we're also not naive. We understand that, you know, it might take somebody numerous tries to stop using substances. We know that people might not be in the space to to start their recovery program, Um, So we, we really want to offer this as an option to people. If they're interested, we want to meet them where they're at. We want to focus on their strengths and what they're bringing to the table. We want to listen to what they think they need in terms of treatment and in terms of um, resources and support. And we really want to craft an individualized plan for them. So if individuals aren't ready yet, they could try again later. If individuals aren't, you know, in a position where they're able to, you know, leave the facility and not use drugs immediately, we understand that that's, that's not how recovery works you know it's it's a lot of starts and stops and it's one step forward and we're here to kind of meet that need and to recognize that people are meaningfully trying to change their lives but that that can't really be done overnight.
2: And I think about, you know, what it means to enter into recovery and it's different for the population we deal with. These are people that don't even have a driver's license. They don't have health insurance. They don't have reliable transportation. They don't have a supportive, you know, family or just support system encouraging them. They don't have you know, the, the firm just
0: maybe a foundation
2: foundation. That's what I'm looking for. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have the foundation that for example, I had when I entered into recovery myself, these are people that it's an insurmountable endeavor. It's incredibly hard. And so the idea that people are resistant to treatment, we make it so hard for people. So this program really seeks to kind of create A support system around somebody who has nothing. I think about individuals I've seen in my own courtroom. I had a gentleman a couple months ago, he had, it was a possession of a controlled substance charge. He was homeless in severe, severe withdrawal, very sick. He took the bus and in addition to all of that, he had a broken leg. Against all odds, this man showed up to court and sat down and just asked for help. And I think that um, speaking of we all have a stake in it. It, I think it's our duty to help somebody who is, doesn't have anything and is still really wanting that treatment, wanting that help. It's, so our program seeks to really just, you know, give those people a hand and make it as easy as possible for them to engage in this process. And I think we all have, we have a lot of stories like that in the Metropolitan Courthouse, and that's kind of what keeps us going and helped us to, you know, really work and, and get this program off and running.
0: Yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible to hear stories like that. And, And I would imagine to see those, you know, face-to-face as you two both probably have. I'm curious as well about what maybe some of the challenges are that you have encountered or are expecting to encounter in this realm. And how do you see this program addressing some of those challenges? One thing I'm struck by is just how quickly you need to act. And sometimes the wheels of the justice system can, as much as everyone wants them to turn quickly, you know, there are challenges built in there, but... What are some of the challenges and how do you think you'll be able to tackle them?
2: So obviously housing and transportation is always a a huge limitation for any of our programs and any of our, for everybody that comes through Metro Court. So those are two big problems and limitations, but you know, there's a lot of hopeful things that we're seeing. People are really stepping up. Everybody wants to be a part of this because everybody, you know, recognizes that it's a huge problem that needs a new approach. We're seeing improvements at the at the uh, jail with um, a new a new treatment pro- provider coming in to work on the the detox aspect of the healthcare they provide. And Stacy,
3: yeah, I think you know one of the biggest struggles that we face when we're trying to do you know anything related to behavioral health or substance use is really stigma. You know, we're still I think we've made a lot of progress as a community. I know that you all were talking to the sheriff recently about his you know behavioral health endeavors, and so you know I think we're we're taking huge steps toward breaking the stigma around behavioral health and around substance use, but it's still very much in our community. You know, there's still very much an attitude of, well, if they wanted it bad enough, they could do it. And, um, you know, we're, we're just, we're learning and continually that that's not as simple as it is. There's so much more involved. So I think it's really kind of breaking through that stigma, breaking through, you know, the criminal justice system being sort of seen as this entity that wants to lock people up and throw them away. You know, we're really trying to to shift that thinking and that perspective because we really are wanting to address this as as an issue of, like I said before, public health, behavioral health, public safety, of course. And those three things are all really connected. And if we can kind of address one of those areas better, it really has an impact on all of them. So um, I think breaking the stigma is a huge component as well, because people are, they don't always feel safe to ask for help because, you know, you had mentioned earlier, Chris, about this impacting so many individuals. And I would almost bet that you have somebody that we all have somebody in our life that is struggling with this, that we don't even know, you know, whether it's a behavioral health issue or a substance use issue, because we don't talk about them. We don't feel safe coming forward about them. We don't feel we're like we're in a position to do that or we don't have the resources to do it. So I think that that's, you know, part of what we're doing here and why we're so excited to speak with you all is really just trying to break that stigma and continue to kind of push back against some of those attitudes around historically how substance use and behavioral health have been viewed.
1: And within this program, what are the metrics that you all use to determine if somebody is at risk for an overdose?
3: Yeah. So we um, are asking right away when somebody is booked into MDC on a new felony case about their their substance use. And so we have a couple of questions, actually four questions that the judge mentioned that we're sort of assessing for risk of overdose. We know that people that are going into custody and exiting custody are did their, their risk of overdose increases dramatically within the first 48 hours of release. That's just kind of the standard across all substances, across all situations with substance use and detox out of the facility. So specifically for opiates and fentanyl, we're asking questions about if they are currently a fentanyl user, if they have had a recent history of overdose, if they're using by themselves, because we know that folks that are using by themselves are at a higher risk of overdose because there's not anybody else there to intervene if they were to you know use too much or use something that they weren't expecting to be using. And then their last question is if they're mixing substances, because we know that that also can very much lead to unintentional overdose. So that's how we're kind of screening who would be at a higher risk of overdose.
1: Are people willingly filling out these screening forms?
3: Yeah, we're getting a really good response. We have, you know, a lot of individuals that are pretty open about their use. They're asked, the questions are asked in context of other questions that, you know, folks are being asked when they're coming into custody. So we've, we've had a pretty good response of, of folks being interested in sharing that information with us.
0: And ultimately, what do you think makes somebody a good fit for this program? I imagine, you know, Judge McDaniel, that's somewhat of the decision you have to make up there as well.
2: Well, it's the district attorney's office that decides the charges and who um, is legally allowed to be in the program. But for me, it is somebody who is willing to engage with us and willing to just volunteer to change their lives which i mentioned earlier is incredibly hard work. So if they are actually willing to meet with our case manager and follow through with this treatment, they're a good fit.
1: Inpatient treatment, i know, can also be a part of this program. Is that something that could be court ordered or become mandatory as part of completing the program or how would that work?
2: So it's all it's all voluntary. We can't force anybody to get treatment, so we but we can certainly offer it. We've had some interest from some inpatient facilities that would like to partner with us. So it's certainly, it's part of, you know, the services we could potentially connect someone with, but it, of course it's voluntary.
3: And we recognize too that, you know, that individuals are the experts in their own lives and they know what's worked for them. They know what doesn't work for them. And we're really trying to kind of leverage their own thinking about their their use and their needs And if they want inpatient, then we're absolutely going to set that up for them. If they're not sure what they need and they really would like some kind of objective input about that, our court clinician can meet with them to kind of give us some more information. So we really want it to be, you know, person-centered and very much directed because we know that if people are interested in the type of treatment, they're more willing to do it. And so we could, you know, suggest and recommend as much as we want to, but at the end of the day, you know, if the person doesn't have buy-in to that, then, you know, they're not going to be as successful. So we really want to have sort of the plethora of options available.
2: And it's also about about just treating people with dignity. They know what's best for them. And also, we're not doctors, um, so obviously. <laughs> but, you know, they know what has worked for them. They know what they need. I had a, a lady a couple of weeks ago who she had been clean and on methadone for years. And she got her degree. She, you know, had a place to live. She was doing well. And then with fentanyl, she relapsed. And she lost everything within, you know, it happens really fast with fentanyl. And she is in the program and she is asking for help. And she knows that to be successful, she needs to get back on methadone. And she needs to re-engage with those support systems that were positive for her. So she knows what she needs. And for us to help her get back on those, you know, engaged with those resources and that medication, I think is uh, the, you know, the best plan for her and something she's choosing and that, you know, it, it's showing respect for her.
0: Yeah. R- if you can remind me again, when did this program start and how many people are about in it right now? If you maybe have a ballpark of that.
2: So we just officially launched, we were kind of informally working with people, but the official launch was just about two weeks mm-hmm. ago.
0: Okay. And how many people so far do you, can you ballpark? Is it a couple dozen or that you're starting with, or obviously it's growing. And I'm curious about sort of the capacity and maybe how sustainable it is in the future.
3: Yeah. So there's not really a capacity. I mean, there is in the sense that our case manager that's dedicated, to the project can only work with, you know, about 25 to 50 people kind of depending on their level of need at any given time. But because the program is designed to really connect people sort of immediately and then their cases are you know, dismissed within 30 to 90 days, the sort of movement of those cases is very fast. So our case manager can kind of, you know, continually sort of bring new people in. So in terms of like sort of overall capacity, we can't really, we don't really know yet. It's going to kind of depend on on how we, um, how things look when we're actually sort of in the thick of it. But, you know, at any given time we can have about 20 to five to 50 people and yeah. And then we can, you know, we, we could estimate that there could be hundreds of people down the road that have been served by this program. So that piece is a little bit still kind of a moving target. You know, we're we're really excited. We've gotten, you know, some systems in place within our courts to kind of make our, the referral process extremely easy. We're, you know, kind of getting everybody on board and trained up. So we have officially launched, but we're very much in the process of kind of getting everything moving along and, and working with um, the individuals that we've got.
1: And I understand just having reported on other specialty courts. Like if somebody is deferred into the program and say, maybe they fall off and they don't complete all the steps. Does that just restart their criminal case then? A specialty court just you kind of put pause on the criminal element, try to get them help, right? And then if they fall off or don't complete the program, what happens to their criminal charge?
2: So if they, we work with them, the first 30 days we're trying to get them medically stable. So they do have to, you know, engage in treatment, meet with the case manager. If they, don't do that. They're probably not going to show up for their 30-day status conference. If you don't show up for your status conference, you get a bench warrant. So it, and then, you know, once we make contact with that person, normally they'll just, they'll get arrested on that warrant or they'll pick up new charges. Then at that point, we can revisit whether or not they want to be, stay in the program and whether or not the district attorney's office would still offer it and re-engage with them, see if they still want to do it in general.
1: Mm-hmm. But otherwise it's just kind of like that revolving door, the cyclical fashion, or it could be for them.
2: Well, so at that point, if we decide the program's not an option for them anymore, the case will proceed as normal.
1: Okay, got it. So,
2: and I know you guys have
1: a, a lot of appointments to go. Judge, you need to get back to court, but is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you want people to understand about the program better or just anything else you'd like to mention?
3: I think I would just like to share that, you know, The judge and I both live in this community. We work in this community. We both have small children in this community. We very much care about what's going on in Albuquerque and the surrounding areas. It's where our homes are, our hearts are. And, you know, we don't take this endeavor lightly. We don't take it just sort of off the cuff. It's extremely important to us. We're extremely passionate about it. So is everybody else that's involved with it. And we really are optimistic that this is going to make an impact in the community. I'm hoping to come back and chat with you guys in a year or two years and, and give you all of this data about how successful it's been and how many lives we've impacted. So put us on the calendar about a year from now so we can give you some updates, but we really do think that this is going to be meaningful for our community. It's one area that, you know, the criminal justice system can kind of step up and meet this challenge. And we just invite everybody else in our community in whatever capacity they have to also step up, to also, you know, come up with creative ideas to support our community, especially around opiates, because like we've talked about, you know, it's just impacting everybody and it's, it's really taking a huge turn in our community. So we're thrilled to be able to talk about it. We're thrilled to be able to, you know, work with these individuals. And so thank you both very much for letting us do that today.
2: And I would just second what Stacy just said. You know, the approach, this is a new approach for a new problem. Um, and what we're doing is, uh, you know, what we have been doing is not working. We can't jail our way out of this. You know, people are dying on the street. People are dying in their homes. People are dying in jail. We need a new approach. And we're hopeful that this this approach will, will change things. Thank you both. We appreciate your time.
0: We're excited to see, yeah, what the results end up being here in the next year. And I think to your point, I think there's a lot of people out there that say, the approach that we've taken towards things hasn't worked, and this is a new one, so best of luck. Hopefully, uh, we'll be talking about the successes of here soon, so.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Again, a special thanks to Metro Court Judge Claire McDaniel and also Behavioral Health Division Director Stacy Boone for joining us here on the podcast. Sounds like a very hopefully beneficial program for the community
1: she mentioned the sheriff. We had just mentioned behavioral health with the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office here who created a behavioral health unit. It sounds like a lot of these different agencies are trying to come up with innovative and new ways to tackle this very prevalent issue in our community. So definitely best of luck. If you have ideas for the podcast or someone you'd like to hear interviewed on our show, feel free to reach out. I'm Gabrielle.Burchardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media.
0: I'm Chris.McKee at krqe.com and at TV. Thanks again for listening.